Hello and welcome to the Good Time Sports Club. I'm OJ Borch. And I'm Rhea Hubble. You are indeed. Are you ready to throw open the doors? Should we put out the chairs, the trestle table? Who's manning the tuck shop this week? <laughs> Who's manning the tuck shop this week? This mm. is the second time you've asked me this. I, I'm missing this point here. You don't know what a tuck shop is? No. Oh my God, something's been lost in Canadian English, Anglo-Canadian <laughs> translations. A tuck shop is, um, you'd have them in schools and youth clubs and things like that. Imagine all the really tooth rotty sweets and drinks that are going to send you mental. Um, basically, they're sold those for about 10 or 15p and someone who runs a tuck shop will normally embezzle the money somehow and use it to buy <laughs> cigarettes. It's basically what a tuck shop is. Wow, I love this. I've never experienced one in my life, so I have no idea who's manning mine. Who's manning yours? <laughs> I'm manning the tuck shop for the club. What would you like from it? What was your favourite Canadian sweet as a kid? Um, so cinnamon is my favourite, favourite sweet, which you don't get here as often in the UK, and people think I'm really weird, but I love, um, like, cinnamon sweets. Mm. Well, hang on, just, just cinnamon, not covered in chocolate, not with E-numbers, just cinnamon. Yeah, but it's like, trust me, to get the flavour of cinnamon you into a sweet, there is a lot of E-numbers involved, my oh, friend. Okay. I'm on, Don't I'm you board, worry then. about that. I'm on board. <laughs> uh, right, what is on this week's show? Well, Captain of the Boat, Mr Payne, Mark, our producer, has got a special report on a rugby charity in South Africa that's battling back against HIV and AIDS. And we'll be having a big Barney to decide which moment from sporting history had the most late drama. But first, the news. Uh, Toyota did enough to win the 2020-24 Hours of Le Mans ahead of Rebellion in the last race for the LMP1 class. Next year, the race will see the debut of the new hypercar format, which promises larger fields and closer racing. And I think a lot of lust over the cars that are entered in that. Mm -hmm. um, if we were going to enter your car into this, Rayo, what car do you have? What's your hypercar? Um, in a, like a fast one in my, in my no 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 what do you actually own <laughs> well my mine is a little mini uh, Cooper R um, Ooh, you know you see that's good that's good it's not it's not bad and our family vehicle is a um, Volkswagen Turan <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> now soon, you see. soon to be replaced with a California so I'm going van life my friend Whoa! Okay, what we need to do is take out the engine and install a jet, which yeah, I'm sure right. they did years ago with a Renault people mover. Now, you see, if I was going to enter my hypercar into it, it's a Skoda Yeti, which I could probably make faster by taking out all the crap that's loaded in the footwells, of yeah. which I looked in today, and there was five apple cores in a box, which is just <laughs> disgusting. Anyway. Yeah. Defending champions Al Halal have been thrown out of the Asian Champions League after naming a squad of 11 players for the final group game. Al Halal were left with nine players on the field and two goalkeepers on the bench following positive COVID tests. Their appeal to the AFC was rejected. Mm. We live in a crazy world. Uh, talking of crazy worlds and crazy stories, which I, I read this in the paper and I thought, it, you know when people put joke stories in, I had to check the date on the calendar because Ryan Reynolds, oh yes, he... <laughs> Ryan Reynolds, Mr. Hottie himself, has paired up with Always Sunny in Philadelphia star Rob McCur... I can never do his name. Rob McCur... <laughs> do it for me. Do it for me, Raya. Rob... Henny. Thank you. To invest in Wrexham <laughs> Football Club. Wrexham Football Club. Um, the fan-owned club have confirmed talks are ongoing with the Hollywood duo who are expected to attend the club's next AGM. I, I, I can't. This story blows I, my I mind. Can't. I don't no, understand. It, 
I don't understand it either, whether one of them has Welsh roots, one of them's been to Sexy Rexy. I don't know where this has come from. I mean, <laughs> Ryan Reynolds... Sexy Rexy, is that a thing? Well, that's apparently what they call it. Yeah, Ryan Reynolds is flush because he sold his, um, his very lovely gin brand. So he's got a fair few millions in the bank. And Rob Muck, whatever you said, I mean, he must have money as well because he's been... <laughs> but it's just crazy. Why have all the football teams did they go for Wrexham? I love it. It should be a film. Maybe it's going to be a Netflix movie, whatever it is. I love that story. You know, maybe that's what they're setting it up for. Because honestly, until today, I'd never heard of Wrexham before. So uh, 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 how uh, uh. these two guys sexy in LA. Sexy Rexy. You'd never heard of Sexy, sexy Rexy. <laughs> exactly. Uh, wow. I'm, I'll be really interested to see how that takeover purchase goes. I do. It's got to happen. Right. First up, let's check in with Mark, Mr. Payne, who's been talking to the man behind Scrum. That's Scrum with a K. Last week, we spoke to former England Rugby Sevens captain Ollie Phillips about, amongst other things, the charity work he's done since retiring. One such project was a community rugby scheme in the southern African nation of Eswatini. I caught up with the founder of Scrum. Okay, name Michael John Collinson and my title is CEO, but I just... I'm head of Scrum here in Swaziland. Eswatini, sorry, Eswatini. As Michael's little slip revealed, Eswatini is a nation going through an identity change. In 2018, to celebrate 50 years of independence, the nation of Swaziland formally renamed itself Eswatini, the name the native Swazis have been calling their homeland for generations. The country on the border of Mozambique and South Africa is rugged, beautiful and mountainous, but beset with severe social problems. We've got the highest incidence of HIV AIDS in the world here in Eswatini. On top of that, if you're a woman in Eswatini, there's a one in three chance that you've been a victim of domestic violence. And there's nobody educating the youngsters between the ages of 12 and 19. The government uh, prioritising the over 22-year-olds, I don't know why, but there was nobody actually going and educating youngsters about HIV, AIDS, gender violence. So I put Scrum together, which stands for Saving Kids Rugby Mission, where we would go into schools, use the game of rugby, because if you go into schools and say to youngsters, I'm going to you know, lecture you on HIV, AIDS, first thing they do is they say, can I go to the toilet? You say, yes, go on, they run away which is, we all do it. Every 12 or 14 or 16 year old will do the same. Wisely, Michael uses games, tag rugby, bulldog, and rugby related slogans. Pass the ball, not the virus. And, you know, hit the gap, not the family. You know, protect the ball, protect yourself. Before moving into a formal classroom setting where the kids are now fully engaged and less likely to run for the hills. Here, a more formal teaching process takes place. Information leaflets are distributed about the consequences of unprotected sex and domestic violence. As Michael takes more of a backseat and his team takes the reins and share their experiences with the children. How Michael became involved with the project is complicated, but really begins when his life changed forever following a horrific accident that took place over the Christmas period nearly 20 years ago. Uh, a Boxing Day 2002... We were driving home from a friend's party in the loaf miles away in the bush. Um, dark, raining, it was pouring down. Uh, we came around a corner and as happens in Swaziland, there's cows in the road. We hit the cow 
and we tripped it. it. We were in a low car and instead of knocking the cow away, we tripped it and it landed on the roof on my side of the roof. The roof caved in, landed on me and severed my spinal cords on, I can't remember, I think it's T4 and the top of my neck and paralyzed from the chest downwards from then. In 1987, Michael brought the first HIV AIDS and STI test to Eswatini, but it was his accident 15 years later and its impact on Michael's mental health that led to a change in Michael's approach to the HIV crisis. And we used to go out uh, and sort of go drive into the rural areas, into the bush, and meet people and stay out there overnight on weekends. We met some amazing people. I had my accident in 2002, and we didn't go out for five or six years because, you know, I was didn't want to go out mentally and then I we did one weekend we went out and we we found Mark that people we knew had gone and when we asked where is so-and-so where are the Dlaminis where are the Matsubulas and they used to say there's a really polite way here oh they moved on so we went oh that's nice where have they gone no they moved on which means they died so we looked into it I looked into it and realized that this HIV issue was huge I mean, there's, now there's, what is it, for, there was 42% of us with HIV. We've got 200,000 OBCs, which is orphans and vulnerable children, because of the HIV. Out of a population of 1.2 million, goodness me, that's a lot of orphans. And I realized that, you know, the youngsters needed educating, because if we don't educate them and try and stop this thing, this HIV, there's going to be no Swazis left in 30 years. Under Michael's leadership, Scrum has set its sights on reaching as many schools as possible across the country. We kicked off in 2008. And uh, so we've been going for t 12 years. And um, in that time, there's 870 something schools here in Swaz and the building that built some more. So that's why I don't know exactly. But we've reached 650 in that 12 years. And our, our, now, our biggest issue now is we're a very mountainous country. You know, we are Swaziland, but we were Swaziland, they've changed the name. We're like, with the call us Switzerland because we are very mountainous. So now we're finding it difficult to get to the schools. And uh, so we're a victim of a, our own success and a victim of the terrain that we live here in Eswatini. But the charity has overcome their logistical challenges and are now expanding their programme further into areas of female health. You're really cool. A girl is ridiculed when she starts a period, you're at school, and if you start bleeding, then it, it's, it, you're basically ridiculed, and you feel, I don't know, victimized could be a great word, and, and it's correct word. So girls don't go to school during that week. And you know, as I looked into it, I realized how much school time in a 36-week in a period of a school year, that's how many weeks children go to school here, girls are missing every fourth week, they're missing a week. Uh, and it, it's, <laughs> we've got to educate the, the girls and not only the girls, but the boys, because we have another team, the men, the co male coaches, educate the boys as well about menstrual cycle. Nobody wants to talk about it. And that's why everybody likes us, because nobody wants to talk about it. And we're willing to talk about it. And we've got two great girls in Shayla and Imelda who go out there. They're 26 years old, so they can relate to young girls. And it's, it's important that we do raise the awareness that you're not, there's nothing wrong with you just because you're bleeding for a week. You know, and, and we're trying to now raise awareness so we can get reusable sanitary pads out there because girls here, they're using grass, they're using newspaper, they're using socks with newspaper in, they're using 
socks with grass in, you know, old fabric. I mean, it's, it's just really, really unhealthy. And we're trying to educate the girls on how you can get past that and get reusable sanitary pads because sanit disposable sanitary pads just cost too much. The girls haven't got the money uh, uh, to, to afford sanitary pads. And it's, it's a basic thing. It's just so basic. So what we're trying to do now is raise awareness and get the government to agree so we can try and raise funds to purchase reusable sanitary pads and give three to each girl we can. So bang, there you go. They, at least they've got a sanitary pad that they can clean and it's theirs. Scrum's work is far from over. The number of HIV and AIDS cases in the country has risen steadily with more than 27% of the population fighting the disease. But despite these worrying numbers, Scrum's message is clearly getting through. Everybody knows who we are. Everywhere we go, they know our logo, they know us. I mean, we go and people say, hey, Scrum, and you just know they know who you are and they know the message, pass the ball, not the virus, hit the gap, not the family. When you go places and you meet people, I mean, it, it, a great story. We went to fill up petrol in the middle of nowhere and we have petrol pump attendants here. He walked up to the car, I said, how are you, Mr. Collinson? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. How are you doing? And of course, straight away, I kick into that. Yeah, how are you doing? Fine mode. Yeah. Do you remember me? Of course I remember you. Yeah, how are you doing? And I coached him with Scrum seven years ago. And he still remembers us and he still remembers Scrum. He remembers the song. And that's what, you know that when everybody knows who you are. And that awareness is a key part of the battle against HIV, AIDS, domestic violence and poor sex education that spread in part due to a lack of knowledge. Michael knows the journey ahead is a long and challenging one, but he has big plans for the future. In the future, we'll be set up here in, in, in Eswatini. We'll be here running like we are now. And then I'd like to go and focus on, if funds have become available, Botswana. Botswana are the second highest incidence of HIV in the world, Botswana. And that is only eight hours away from us. Third highest in the world, Lesotho, which is six hours away from us. So if you look, the one, two, and three HIV in the world are right here. So what I'd love to do is funds, you know, get the funds together to go and take Scrum and drop it straight into Botswana and do the same there and go to Lesotho and do it there. And, and that's how I, and they've also got, Botswana have also got the issues with gender violence and female hygiene. And so have Lesotho with both female hygiene and gender violence. So it can be, Scrum can be taken to Botswana and Lesotho, and that's what I'd like to do. And of course, we wouldn't be talking about this if it wasn't for last week's guest, Ollie Phillips. So just before we left, I asked Michael what his memories were of Ollie's time with the team. He came here and I, I have heard, I heard of Ollie Phillips and he was the captain of the England Sevens and all that. So you think, oh my goodness, he came here, not some fancy hotel or anything. He stayed, at, no, I'm coming for a few days. He stayed across the road. Great. He got stuck in, came here, came to the house. Costa came helping, cooking and everything. It was like, okay, this is not what you expect from an England captain. And his enthusiasm and his want to get involved was just un unbelievable. And he says that my enthusiasm was infectious. His enthusiasm was infectious. He got, we took him into the middle of the bush. Mark, I'm talking about the middle of the middle of nowhere. And we ended up doing Bulldog. We were playing Bulldog and Tag. We were doing a community session and the age was six to 60. And we got photographs. I'd love to dig them out. There's, there's Ollie Phillips, the England seven captain, playing tag against 60-year-old women. Like Ollie, 
Michael's enthusiasm, passion and drive is infectious and a constant reminder to me of the good that sport can do. Thank you very much, Mark, with Michael from Scrum there. Great story. Very entertaining guy. Fabulous story. Now, this week's top 10 is dramatic finales. Um, And I, you know what? There are some very, very good ones. I'm guessing, Mark, that we've Mm. gone for it this week based on the Tour de France. Yeah, uh, and my amazing ability to curse Primoz Roglic from what seemed like an unlosable position. I've cursed him to the point where he lost it when, you know, I, you know, I should have put money on it. But, um, yeah, that is the reason. Um, I know people. I know people who did put money on a man. I, do you know? I've done podcasts for the past three weeks on the Tour de France, and the man who's won it, I'm still struggling with his name. Does anyone have the right pronunciation? Because Go on, let's hear I yours. thought it was okay. Tadej Pogacar. So I've gone with Tadej uh, Tade Pogacar, but I particularly, I particularly enjoyed Sean Kelly's pronunciation of it. <laughs> yeah, go on. Which is Tadej Pogacar. Yes. Well, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard, so Pogacar's the one that I've heard, and then I've heard Pogacar. I have heard Pogacar. That was, everyone was doing Pogacar. Shall we just from now on, can we all agree just call him the Pog? The Pogmeister. Yes. Pog versus Rock. Yes. Yeah, okay, good. Okay, so I'm guessing it's based on that. I, I must admit, just, just before we get into the top 10, I sort of wanted it to be closer. I did. I wanted, I thought, I sort of wanted Primoz Roglic to win it. I thought they had the best team. The tactics were pretty good and I quite like Primoz. And I was sort of rooting in all of the mountains, but the way he lost it and the crushing defeat and the fact that people are, and this is not me, I'm just I'm repeating what's out there, when somebody does something superhuman in cycling, people immediately question it. And it mm. has been pointed out that the team at UAE Emirates has a funky past. Yeah, I mean, i tell you what, what springs to me, and I don't know if you feel like this, Rayo, as well, but I, if you were watching it, it was one of those moments where you suddenly felt the need to tell people that don't care about cycling, and that's yeah. when I can tell you it's a really good moment. I remember watching it, and I text my mum, who <laughs> sat watching cycling with me when I was younger, and paid zero attention, and said, turn off what you're watching and turn it on, because there's an incredible thing happening. And I said, the exact words were, they're going to have the closest finish in Tour de France history, like, turn it on, and then he won by a minute. So Yeah, yeah. it's so <laughs> It was amazing. Because yeah, it's it's also one of those things where it's very rare that you have a time trial on the last day and a time trial up the mountain to finish, and there was just so many different variables that made it quite exciting. And then of course when he starts taking over and the time is going down, and I mean, yeah, I don't think anyone would have thought it was a whole minute. There was just no way, but incredible mm. performance. But yeah, like you said, you know, the rumor mills start flying and people start being accusatory before anything's even been proven or or thought of. Well, let's let, let's just let's just celebrate the fact that a man who was 21 when he won it, 22 the day after, the youngest winner of the Tour de France since 1903, possibly ever, depending on how you how you manage that sort of thing. Mm. Um, he won it. So let's celebrate that until until further notice. Uh, so where <laughs> are we starting then, Mark? Where are we starting? Well, you know, the obvious place to go when we're talking about great finales and particularly given the story we had is the Tour de France's closest ever finish, like we mentioned before, which is Laurent Fignon and Greg LeMond. And we've alluded to this finish, but if you're new to cycling and the messages that I've got are people that are quite new to cycling listening to this podcast and are kind of getting into it slowly for us hammering it every now and then. And <laughs> um, this this is one of the great greatest sporting moments, full stop. So you've got Laurent Fignon, is sort of older traditional cyclist doesn't wear a helmet cycles with glasses 
doesn't wear a skin suit, rides on an old-fashioned bike. Uh, looks Greg- looks like a professor. Looks like looks mm-hmm. like the guy at your school who possibly runs the Dungeons and Dragons club in the <laughs> <Yes>. lunch breaks. <laughs> Or at least won't let you in the library after eight o'clock. Yeah, but. exactly. It would, would frisk you to make sure you don't have bubblegum as you go in there. Uh, and then you've got, um, you know, Greg LeMond, who we've spoken about before on this list and for different reasons. Uh, riding with triad bars, um, aero helmet, looks like he's from a different era. Um, and basically what happened earlier in the tour, Greg LeMond had put 50 seconds into him in a 40-odd second time, a 40-odd kilometre time trial. And he had to do pretty much the same again on a much shorter time trial, it was about 20K. And basically the logic was, there's no way that he's gonna be able to overturn this 50 second deficit on the final day. A bit like what was happening with Pogacar and Roglic. And crazily, it came down to the fact that um, Finion lost by eight seconds. And this is the most incredible thing that I've ever read. Apparently, he, he's famous ponytail. If he cut it off, that was eight seconds worth of drag. <laughs> no so oh my God. Now, you <laughs> yeah. see, I had a ponytail for many years. It was all based Did on you? a bad haircut I had once. Yeah, yeah, I had a really bad haircut. I walked into a hairdresser's holding a picture of Jason Donovan and said, I'd like this, please. And I was, I was, so, I was so emotionally scarred, but I refused to cut my hair for about, about a decade. Um, so, yes, yeah, so you're telling me, basically, had I taken up cycling at a younger age, I should have cut off my ponytail and I would have done better. Yeah, I would have made Wow, eight seconds of ponytail. Brilliant, I love it. Okay, um, how do you want to mark this, Mark? Well, uh, I, I haven't got a nice catchy phrase for it. Close ability. Think... <laughs> That'll do. All right. Well, eight, eight seconds in the Tour de France is a ridiculously small moment. So we come down to the final stage and it still be that. I'm going to give it a nine. Yeah, I'm with you. It's, I, you, I don't think you quite understand the distances that are traveled in the Tour de France until you spend an entire summer, namely last year, watching the Tour de France, like the live coverage from start to finish with your boyfriend at the time. Um, And even I, who love cycling, didn't quite understand it until I realized that I'd done nothing but watch cycling for two full weeks apart from one day. Uh, Eight seconds is um, extraordinary. I want to, I kind of want to give it eight to get a nice round number, but you know, I'm tipping the scales at nine or 10. Yeah, I, I agree with you. So you only watched two weeks of the Tour de France. Did you just not fancy the final week then? <laughs> Three weeks. You only know, I tell you what, you only know the true distances of the Tour de France when you have driven around behind it. Have, it, I've done have it you twice. really I've, had I've that d- opportunity? Yeah, mm. I've, d- I've done two tours. So I've done two, I feel like saying like two tours of duty, it's like being in Vietnam, but um, I did two tours. Um, and the first one I did, which was very much as a reporter and doing podcasts for the BBC, it was okay, but I mean, literally, there was a couple of drives which are outrageous. You'll do big, long days, sort of 10, 12 hour days, and then you have to drive five or six hours. It is quite literally a lap of France. And some of it is on hairy roads, and you're tired, and you're arguing with the people in the car. It's not the best. The worst drive we ever did was we had this newfangled, I think it was a Renault. Um, and it, it was one of those cars that has all, it's all singing, all dancing, and they've thrown everything at it. And on a very hot day, possibly the hottest day, for some reason, the engine management went mad and it turned on all the heated seats on the hottest day. And also, we couldn't get the windows to roll down fully. You've literally, all of us, including our female producer, were sat in our underwear as we drove (laughs) off the top of this mountain. Uh, And then the second second tour I did, which was very much the same distances, but I wasn't reporting, I was doing like live shows around it. Um, And it meant that I drove, instead of driving to like the starts and the finishes of the races, I just drove from like Vineyard to Champagne Cellar 
to Lake <laughs> Cafe, to Mountainside Cafe, to Pub in the Ard. You know, it was just I just did this like amazing like three week jaunt around uh, around France. It was amazing. But yeah, the distances I agree are ridiculous. Yeah. No, I, I went to go for a football one. There are so many great football stories of coming back from, you know, last minute moments. I nearly put Watford um, sneaking into the playoff final after conceding a last minute penalty. Nearly put Manchester United beating Bayern Munich in the Champions League final, but couldn't. couldn't... No, I know. I know the one you've gone for. Have you gone for I've the gone rivalry? I've gone for the other one. Yeah, but just because the stakes were so high. Manchester City winning the Premier League in 2012. This was just one of the most extraordinary weekends in football I can remember. This is, again, I, the way I judge this in terms of the drama is, did you feel the need to tell someone that doesn't care about the sport? And that is, I did that a lot. Did you see the game? <laughs> uh, did, I, did, did I need to tell anyone who was in sport? No. What I felt I needed to do was tell everyone who knew who was a Manchester United fan about the game repeatedly <laughs> for the next year. So, uh, I don't know if you know about this, Rayo, because uh, I don't know what, where, where you were in terms of my, uh, my love for football. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, well, basically, what happened? Manchester United, Man City have a long-standing rivalry, typically dominated by Manchester United, who basically won everything, uh, particularly during the '90s and '90s. Manchester City, with a small, smaller brother, got some investment, significant investment, it has to be said, but still were struggling to take that final step and win their first league title. <laughs> They come into the final game of the season. All they need to do is match Manchester United's result. They're at home against a team that is threatened with relegation. They're the favourites to win, obviously. Manchester United are away against a mid-table team. Obviously still favourites to win, but it seems like it's destiny. It's finally going to happen. Manchester City somehow conspire to lose the lead. They're trailing in injury time. Manchester United have won. The game is over. They're pretty much celebrating on the pitch. In injury time, they score two goals one of which is 93 minutes into the game <laughs> to win the league and the crowd goes wild. It's it's one of those moments you just, if you've never seen it before, look it up, it's incredible. It is, it is, it is an emotional moment. I, I, I grew up <laughs> in Leicester um, and everyone there, it was full of glory supporters because Leicester, you know, this is years before glory Leicester even had a chance of winning the league. Yeah, Glory supporters, yeah, they'd come in every year were wearing United tops. My brother's a United fan and he grew up a bit in Leicester and mainly in Malta, you know. it's And and from my childhood, United won everything. And, and I think unless you're a fan, you get a bit, a bit of animosity towards that team. And I always had a bit of a soft spot for Man City. Now, it's, very di it's a very different Man City, which were backed by one of the richest men on the planet and they had one of the richest teams around when they won the league to the Manchester City of years before. But I remember that final day from a from a true, you can't write it perspective of sporting drama, it's an eight. No, it's a nine. The fact that it was Manchester City versus Manchester United is all of your tens. I mm. give it four out of seven, top marks. <laughs> um, do you know, the uh, one of the main experiences that I've ever had of Manchester City and Manchester United is I, um, very long time ago, when I first moved to the UK, dated someone from Manchester, and on one of our dates, we went to watch... Wasn't me! It wasn't you. We went to watch a Manchester United at home play Manchester City. So it's called, is that a called, it's called a derby? Am I right in saying? It is indeed derby? a derby, yes, it's a derby. Um, and this was maybe the week before Rooney signed for Man United. And the only thing I could hear in the crowds for 90 minutes, I basically didn't pay attention to the game. I couldn't tell you who won, probably Man United at the time. Um, but Manchester City fans going, 
Rooney's going to Chelsea. Rooney's going to Chelsea for 90 <laughs> minutes. Um, and for me, I think that's why football frustrates me is that if you go, you want to watch these amazing games. And I'm just in, encapsulated with what's going on in the fans because there's so much. I go for the theatre. Yeah, it is. It's theatrical. So back to my point here is that you, th- this goes to the, the theatrics of football. Um, there's sometimes a real beauty to it, but other times you just can't write this stuff. You couldn't bet on something like that happening. You could you could write it, but people would say, stop over-egging it. It's like, it's <laughs> like with 2020, where, you know, we're, we've had all sorts of things happen already. Then we, what was it? There was something happened earlier in the year, like we had earthquakes, and then there was like weird rain, and then there was 20, then there was, then there was fire, then there was the pandemic, and then halfway through the pandemic, we had murder hornets. You know, it was just like, stop <laughs> overwriting it, man. And then there was like, there was like an asteroid which came close to Earth, and then they found possible life on Venus because they found killer gas. You know, it's just... Uh, that's what I feel overwritten and it's almost <laughs> if you weren't there to see if you didn't know it happened you'd go come on you're never going to get that script through because it's unbelievable but believe it baby believe unbelievable it. Jeff right <laughs> Ooh, there you go <laughs> Well, I was just going to say, with that and with all of these, what I would say is when when this article goes up on the website, there will be the clips that you'll be looking for. And every single one of these comes with amazing commentary of people that captured the moment perfectly. Everyone who's a football fan knows Aguero with 11 O's. <laughs> and if you, this is one that you probably won't know the commentary, but um, if you've ever followed endurance racing in motorsport in any way, you'll recognize the voice of John Heindorf. Um, it's a guy from the northeast of the country, very enthusiastic fan, and he was a perfect man to commentate on what is probably one of the most gutting things that's ever happened at Le Mans. So if you don't know the history, there's always a team that is nearly, nearly going to win. Nearly there. Every year they almost get it. And it's typically like, if you're talking about Man United and their dominance, in the 90s and noughties, Audi were the team to beat. They won it every bloody year and loads of teams came close but not quite far enough to beat them so Peugeot in in the early 2000s got to the point where they were leading and they had four cars drop out in the last three hours pretty devastating but nowhere near what Toyota have had so 2014 they were on pole they led for most of the race one of their cars lost a load of time the other one got hit by a GT car did a backflip and crashed while it was leading Uh, in 2016 uh, they thought they'd got it sorted and this was the this is the moment in particular they have got all the way to the final lap of a 24-hour race where they've planned for four years to get there and a part on the car that, that costs a hundred, hundreds of millions to develop that costs five pounds breaks and they are stranded directly under their pit crew on the last lap with no way of finishing. They eventually tore around too slow to, to qualify to finish the last lap. They end up getting disqualified and they've already been overtaken by the race leaders. So they end up coming, well, one lap away from Le Mans victory and lose it all 23 hours and 58 minutes in. I mean, cue the sad music from Romeo and Juliet. That's what right. happens at that moment. <laughs> Absolutely that moment. I mean, I, it's, that's not a close finish. That's just, I mean, you'd throw your steering wheel at the wall, wouldn't Could you? Could you imagine the level of sleep deprivation that you're suffering yeah. from at that point? And I, like... I am. I struggle when I'm sleep deprived for one night. Like this is a, a 24 hour period. There's no way I could go through um, as a competitor. 
losing in that a final lap, I I would be devastated. I don't know how an entire yeah. team with that sort of sleep apnea would be would be managing. It's just crazy. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you'll know this better than me, Raya, as a, an endurance athlete. As soon as you start doing big things where you are at your physical limit. You, your emotions become really uncontrollable. Yeah. Like, really uncontrollable. Like, um, I did this bike ride, which was the three days, uh, and it was really long days in the saddle, and part of that reason was the terrain was just a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. But I was, I started to get really quite emotional towards the end. When I did my Everesting, which took us whatever it was, like 20 hours, I was I was, I was, was in tears towards the end. Yeah. Just not for any reason other than I couldn't control my emotions. It's, it's really interesting because endurance sport is not just about how fit and how long you can go for it. It's not just about the food and the nutrition side of things. It's actually about taking yourself to such a limit, depleting your body of so much energy, whether that be nutrition or even muscle wastage, you name it. And your body just, it starts to mess with your hormones, boy, guys and women included, and you become a a wreck. I mean, I don't know how many people have said to me at the, at the on the red carpet um, finish of an Ironman how many people have cried, or they're around people in the finish line who have cried. And it's it's not just because you're so proud of yourself for finishing; it is because you are physically and mentally broken. Um, and an Ironman doesn't take 24 no, hours. No. I mean, for some people, it can. But yeah, what are you saying? Don't you look at me when you say that sort of thing? <laughs> what was the world never. record? <laughs> it is seven <laughs> Shut up. seven fifty two. I'm doing six. Seven fifty. <laughs> <laughs> is that like the Britney Spears claim where she did just claims to hundred meters in six seconds? Oh, it's, 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 it's the Britney Spears claim, or it's the dear leader. It's Kim Jong Un who yeah. who basically set every record, including he won shot. Uh, I think an eighteen hole round of golf because he got eighteen holes in one. I mean, oh, obviously. Talking of, uh, talking of <laughs> golf, you seamlessly led me on to one of our other ones on the list, which is uh, 2012 Ryder Cup, the miracle of Medina. Now, I'm not a big fan of golf in general, but I love the Ryder Cup. There's something about it that just draws you in. And I can remember sitting in a pub when I was, I was out with friends and I just thought, oh, they're not going to win. And it was just on in the background and, it, and everyone was doing the same thing. Everyone had kind of had a half interest in it. And then slowly through the day, the interest rose to the point where at the end of it, the whole pub seemed to be surrounding the TV. So people would go, turn it up, turn it up. You know, it was on silence to start with. <laughs> and it was one of the most incredible moments. So but you don't, if you don't know what happened, um, go don't give it away, day, spoiler. <laughs> if you've not seen the box set, <laughs> get started, pause this, come back. But yeah, it's leading 10-6 on the final day. America needed four and a half points to win. Uh, and then basically there's this massive toing and throwing through the game. Um, the first four matches are won by Europe, uh, including Rory McIlroy, who only got to the ground uh, to, to tee off on time because he was given a lift, lift in a police car because he was late to the, to the tee. So that's, a, that's drama <laughs> in itself. He wins his match. Justin Rose puts Europe in front. Zach Johnson wins the match for America. It goes back and forth, back and forth to the point where there's three games left in play. America are leading two, they're drawing the other one. As that stands, America wins the Ryder Cup. It looks like it's over. Um, Sergio Garcia is facing Jim Furyk on the 16th hole. Furyk starts to celebrate as the ball is on the way to the hole because it looks like it's gonna go in to give him a two shot lead, which will basically mean he's guaranteed half a point and he's probably gonna win it. 
it gets to the hole and sort of swivels round it. It's like it's like it's been remote controlled. It moves around the hole, goes <laughs> off the side, and then Garcia ties that hole, and Furyk never recovers. He loses the next two holes. You go Sergio Garcia goes from losing the, the match to winning it. That turns the game around. Martin Keimer, the other European who's having a fight, he beats uh, Steve Stricker, that wins. And in the end, Tiger Woods ends up giving up his match. It's over, Europe win. And they've come back from, the, I think it's one of the biggest deficits ever in Ryder Cup history. Incredible. Yeah. I, I also don't follow golf particularly. Every now and again, we'll watch a little bit of it, but it's, you know, it's not my bag, baby. But I remember watching parts of that and being absolutely blown away. And it, But it's one of those where I think golf can be confusing anyway. I think the, the uh, Ryder Cup could be confusing with holes and splits and points and the rest of it. But it was it was it was commentated on so well that you were just mm. you were wrapped up in the sports drama. Yeah, I'm going to give it ten out of ten and minus five for it being such a posh game. <laughs> Says the guy who's lovers of cycling, another pretty posh How sport dare when you're you? following no, hang cars on. The, the bicycle, in the Tour the bicycle de is, a, is an egalitarian workhorse. <laughs> oh, listen, I totally agree with you. Totally How agree with you. How much were the bikes they were riding in the Tour de France? Just out of curiosity. This year, about twelve thousand pounds. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Most, of, most of them, most of them top ten thousand pounds oh, God, easily. Yeah. Look, that's that's the irony of recycling, though, isn't it? That it's gone for it was it was you know a way for for working class people to get about. The Tour de France was about working class. It was always about poor people. Then got co opted by you know middle class, the middle classes, especially in the Is sports. It, couldn't you things. say the same thing about golf? I think golf's always been posh, though, isn't it? I don't think there, ever, there was ever never a time where people were jumpers for holes, were they? Just yeah, knocking you, balls about. You were never getting two lads from Dagenham going around whacking no. a ball around with a pair of sticks, no, were you? No, it's always been a posh game. A bit like tennis. I think tennis has always been that. I mean, there are games which have been traditionally played by the upper classes. I mean, there's no yeah. working class circuit for pro fencing, is there? That's just called twatting your mate with a broom. Not one that I know of. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say. I mean, you could just say it's a fight in a pub, but because there's plenty of those out around. Here. What? Like knife fight or something? <laughs> Not fencing. <laughs> Two people with colanders on the face. Exactly. That blade is not regulation size. Is <laughs> <laughs> that a foil? I don't. I think that more looks more like a shank to me. I think it's just because in in you know upper class circles they used to throw down a challenge and they'd go and get their swords and get dressed what? up. Whereas in a pub, when someone in it, a normal person has a fight, they just right. punch the guy in the face. I've got a challenge for what you, Mark. What century for next, are we I've talking got... here, Mark? <laughs> well, this is. Hang on. Well, this is it. Okay. So I've got a challenge for you, Mark, for next week. Right. And that is. There is a sport that I saw mentioned, which is full contact medieval fighting. So they all wear armor. They all have swords. Yeah, yeah, they all have swords. And it's like a proper fight league. Okay. They have training camps. They have the works. They don't pull any punches. You're not allowed. The two things you can't do is you can't stab and you can't can't manipulate the small joints. Everything else you can do. I would like, like an interview. UFC rules, but with arms. Yeah, it is. They, they, they call it like the ultimate UFC. It's big in Australia. So my challenge to you is let's have an interview on that for next week. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll try. <laughs> All um, right. Should we carry on with the list? Let's do one more. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, I couldn't leave this one off the list because it's the one that I have the most visceral memory of. Um, so back in the, well, the mid-2000s, Lewis Hammond was, you know, before he was a dominant driver, was starting to look like he might be a nearly man that just missed out. 2007, his debut season, he had an incredible battle with his teammate, Fernando Alonso, who was the reigning champion. 
the title seemed to be destined to end up with either him or Alonso. The pair managed to mess it up over several races with various different clashes. And um, yeah, essentially it came down to a race where he needed to finish fifth. He ended up at the back of the grid with an electrical problem and finished sixth, so just missed out. The next year, he comes to Brazil, the final race of the season, needed to finish fifth. Uh, his main title rival, Felipe Massa, needed to win in order to stop him from taking the title. Seemed like a fairly easy proposition. That weekend, McLaren really struggled, so he could only qualify fourth. Massa was on pole. It suddenly looked more and more dramatic. Then it got worse. There was huge downpours at the start of the race. The race was delayed. Hamilton does manage to get to fifth, and then they mess up his pit strategy, bring him in too late. He goes down the field, starts seventh, works his way back up to fifth. Every time he got to that magic fifth position, something would happen. In the end, it comes down to a point where the track has dried, Hamilton's in fifth, and then it starts raining, and he has a decision to make. Does he come in for the wet tires, or does he stay out and try and see if it dries out? He pits, Massa pits, all the leaders pit, apart from the two Toyotas and a couple of backmarkers. He just needs to maintain the fifth position he's got, and hope he holds on. But a bizarre set of circumstances happen. He's in fifth position. One of the back markers, who's, while it's still dry, has still got more, more pace, goes past him, and in doing so, moves him off the track. He loses track position. The guy in sixth, who is a young guy called Sebastian Vettel, overtakes him. He has got no chance at this stage of overtaking him. He's more than a second clear goes into the final lap and the downpour just becomes extreme. And I can remember I was with a guy who absolutely hated Lewis Hamilton, who was literally standing on the chairs going, he's blown it, he's blown it. And like the geek I am, I had the live timing up. You can see it happening in slow motion. All of a sudden he was, the, the guy in fourth who hadn't pitted for wet tires was losing 10 seconds, like every sector. It was 25 seconds in front and it was like, it was just a matter of if he was going to lose it in time. And on the screen, as Hamilton came out the final corner, the other team are celebrating. Hamilton goes past him, crosses the line in one movement. It's not even like he goes past him and then celebrates. It's all the way around him, crosses the line. And if you've never seen the footage, it's, it's amazing. The guys in the Ferrari garage are literally punching the wall and staring with shock while he was going to date Nicole Scherzinger, bizarrely, at the time. She comes around. You mean his going, aunt, yes! a woman who looks like his auntie at the time? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it was just the most... I mean, you can't get much more dramatic than winning mm. it on the final corner of the final race of the season, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the biggest... Um, not I'm not the biggest motorsport fan. Not anymore. I sort of lost the, the love of it. But I, that is another one of those that transcends not just the motorsport, but transcends sport in general to become Oscar-worthy. What are you giving it? Hmm. Eight out of ten. Yeah, I, I'm with you. This is this was sort of right at the beginning of his career before anyone knew whether he was going to be arguably one of the best sort of racing car drivers of all time. He was still pretty young. There was a, still a huge amount of, shall we say, theatrics, taking it back to football for a second because of the sort of roughing and toing and froing between his, his teammate, Fernando Alonso. Um, uh, yeah, I, I I loved this moment. I thought it was unbelievable because you just didn't think he could he could make up the time. And right at the very end, just making that move, sudden, suddenly people sat up and I think thought, okay, this kid's going to do something good here. So eight out of 10. And if you want to see the rest of the top 10, go to our website and uh, check out Twitter feed. It will be published there. Amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Which I think brings us to the end 
of another show. Um, thank you very much to Mark, as always. Thank you very much to Rhea Hubel. We didn't do your week in sport. Do you want to do yours quickly? Should we end the show on it? Well, I, the, the reason why I was upset that we haven't done the week in sport is actually mine was pretty boring, but I was really excited to hear how you got on because you did something quite remarkable this week. Well, yeah, and I played it down beforehand. I did I did part of the Second City Divide, which was, um, it's a 600 kilometer plus ride between two of the UK cities, Manchester and Glasgow. People from Birmingham, don't at me. I didn't say they, they were the two second cities, okay? It's not me who came up with it. Anyway, I read it all, had a big old faff about it, and then we started out, and it was a lot harder than any of us thought it was going to be. Not really because of the distance, not really because of the climbing, even though every day was 100k, really, round about there. One day was 115, one was 95. Um, but the climbing was anywhere between sort of 2,000 and 2,250 per day with fully laden bikes, but some of it was unrideable. And it's one thing going up a steep hill when you're on tarmac or on a road because you can you can sit in and you can weave in the rest of it. When you're going up what is a gravel path, you're about wheels going, you're banging up and down things. Mm. It is, it's hard work. I am broken from it. I'm absolutely broken. This week has been tough because of it. Um, and also what I went out on the final. What bike were you riding? I rode my, my, my cyclocross bike and after all the faff making sure I was wearing the right clothes and having the right bags and the rest of it, I went out with the wrong tyres. Luckily, on the f- ah. uh, luckily, luckily, somebody had tweeted me um, who runs Single Track magazine, a guy called Chips. And bizarrely, he actually lived not far away from our first stop night, so he dropped me off a pair of actual gravel tyres because trying to do 100k on really aggressive mud tyres was killing me. It was really killing me. It was great. I'm glad I've done it. It was type two fun. But yeah, my knees a mess. I'm a mess. Emotionally, I'm going to cry any moment. <laughs> no, yeah. pull yourself together, bud. We're super <sighs> proud of you. That is amazing. It was very good. I'd recommend everyone have a crack at it. I really would. I Round really would. of applause, OJ. Round of applause. That is, that is great work. Good going. Mm, we should all do it. Anyway, it's been great. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this, the Good Time Sports Club. Um, it has been a Shock Giraffe production. Uh, I'm OJ Borge. And I'm Rhea Hubble. Thank you very much to Mr. Payne, Mark Payne as well, for his production. And also, who's the other shout-out, Mark? It always goes out to James... Watkins. There you go, for additional support as well. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you download this. Make sure you subscribe to it. Make sure you rate it as well. If you don't give it five stars, I'm telling Rhea where you live. Um, We'll be back next week (laughs) with hot, middle-aged... No, it's not middle-aged. What do I call it? Middle-class? Medieval is what I'm thinking about. <laughs> not middle-aged, not middle-class, medieval fight news. We'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs>